Merry Christmas, Parkview. We're glad to have you here. Um, we try to make it different every year, you know? I mean, it's Christmas season, and you don't know how hard it is. This is my 20th Christmas season to preach at this church, so i got to keep coming up with, you know, some new angle. That's why I love that drama, to come up with some new angle to the same story, because it is the same story. I feel a little bit like Elizabeth Taylor's seventh husband on their wedding night. I know what to do. I'm just trying to make it more exciting. You know what I'm saying? So, so we're... Uh, we're back to Christmas all over again, and, and, and it's different this year for me because of some things that I'll tell you about. I had to ask myself this year, do I, why do I believe this stuff? Why, why Christmas over anything else? One church solved it for me. I think this makes a lot of sense. Christmas, it's easier to spell than Hanukkah. I mean, that's one good reason right there, right? Um, but the greater question is not why do I believe this, it's do I believe this? Do I really believe in this story? The American Atheist Society has come up with a big ad campaign this year uh, to, to celebrate the fact that it's just a myth. Here's their billboard. You may see this around somewhere. You know it's a myth. This season, celebrate reason. American Atheist Association. I mean, they're just coming right out and they're going to challenge it, you know? I mean, it, it, is this story really true? And the problem is, you know, we think of Bethlehem and we start to think of mystical places that exist in a story somewhere. It's like a fairy tale land like Narnia or Wonderland or, or more importantly at Christmas time, it's like the North Pole. And the story of Christmas in any form is always something that makes us feel warm and it makes us feel, uh, you know, memories of childhood. And, and so it's always a, a good thing and a joyous thing for us. But I've just returned from the real Bethlehem. From the very first time in my life, I got to go to the Holy Land. I got to actually see Bethlehem. And I want to tell you that Bethlehem is not like Polar Express. It, it's really more like Christmas vacation, honestly. You know, it's real. There are problems and there are squirrels. There are squirrels in Bethlehem. Uh, many parts of the Holy Land, honestly, um, helped my faith a great deal. But to be honest, all of us decided when we left Bethlehem that that was a dumb, dumb idea. It was just a bad idea because Bethlehem was in the Palestinian-controlled part. I just can't imagine that shepherds or the wise men having a, 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 an armed officer with an Uzi get on their bus before they went into Bethlehem, you know? But that's what happened. Our Jewish guide had to get dropped off, and we picked up a Palestinian guide so that we could go into this area. And, and, and all your life, you're thinking, oh, little town of Bethlehem, right? You're thinking of this quaint little village. You're thinking of this quaint little town. And what did we find when we got there? This is what we found when we got there. Stars and Bucks Cafe. <clears throat> and that kind of epitomized our whole experience in Bethlehem, to be honest with you. Let me show you on this, uh, on this map, let me show you how the whole thing lays out, okay? Bethlehem is, is right next to Jerusalem, which is right next to the Herodian, which is Herod's palace. I'm going to talk about all of those things over the next few weeks because I want to try to take you to the lands of the Holy Land and let you see uh, how God used the different areas of, of the Holy Land and how it all worked together for us. And I'm going to show you a video right now. Let's just watch. studied extensively as a biblical scholar that I am. I just want to point out that you read Hebrew from right to left. So what this says is keep to the right. I'm here in Bethlehem. I know that when you think of, uh, you know, Christmas story, sometimes Bethlehem feels like the North Pole. You're like, is it really a place? Was it really a place? It really was a place. It really is a crazy place. It's under Palestinian rule now, uh, but they allowed us to come in and uh, look at it, even though we're just uh, a few miles away from Bethlehem. What I want to point out to you 
is the King Herod's palace was way back over there on a hill that you can see back over that way. And uh, that's the Herodian over there. That's where King Herod's palace was. Fascinating that that king, the crazy king, the king that's remembered for killing babies and building lots of stuff, he was over there, and he thought he was the king, and he was the man. And all the time behind me is the, the little steeple with the light on top. That is the Church of the Nativity. And uh, that's traditionally where Jesus was born. There's a little cave there. Uh, this is a bunch of people trying to find their way in and touch what is the spot where Jesus was born. You can just see that it's crazy. I don't know if you could even see a spot of it. So this is, uh, this is, this is where Jesus was born over here. And Jerusalem's just right over that way. I mean, it, it's not very far away. So what you had going on was... The, the power central of the, of the world, the power center, Herodias, the puppet king, who was the king and was so afraid of all the other kings that he killed his own two sons. He drowned one of them because he was afraid that he was going to take over for him. And then when Jesus was born and the Magi came and said, hey, where's the king? They, of course, go to talk to the, to the people who are the king, right? They, and the, so fascinating that, that they knew he immediately where Jesus was going to be born. They said, oh, he's just over there. He's supposed to be born in Bethlehem. And here's the scripture from Micah. Oh, Bethlehem, out of you is going to come this mighty king out of this little tiny place. It's, it's fascinating to me that they missed the whole thing, that this king thing's going on over here. Herod's wealth was an estimated hundred times more than the gross domestic product of the entire nation that he was over. He had all kinds of crazy stuff going on. But he was paranoid because he knew that this somebody else might come along someday and be the king of kings. And, of course, all we remember Herod for now is being a crazy baby killer. And Jesus, who was probably born not very far away, right over here, is the king of kings. Never owned a building, never had subjects, except for those of us that choose to serve him to this day. So the question for us today is, why Bethlehem? Why did God choose Bethlehem? Why not Herod's palace? Why not Jerusalem? Why not some other place? It's one of the many details of the Christmas story that make us think maybe God just didn't have this all planned out. You know, I mean, it just didn't make sense. I mean, it, it seems so disjointed. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi came from the east to Jerusalem and asked, where's the one who's been born king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod heard this, he was disturbed. And all of Jerusalem with him. When Herod ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. Okay? You heard me say he killed two of his sons. He killed a bunch of his wives. Killed all the baby boys in Bethlehem because he was paranoid that some other king would come along. And when he had called together, here's what blows me away. When he had called together the people, chief priests and the teachers of the law, he asked them, where is the Christ supposed to be born? And they instantly, they didn't have to go look it up. They said, in Bethlehem, in Judea, they said, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Bethlehem was not a surprise. It was planned. Don't you think if your town was the planned place where the Messiah was going to come, you would like at least put up a billboard or something? You know, don't you think you'd have a Messiah village or a Ferris wheel? There's got to be something. To say, hey, the Messiah's coming. We're Bethlehem. Nobody cared about this place. It was completely insignificant. How many of you were born in a town that was smaller than 5,000 people? Let me see your hands. Won't be very many because a lot of you are from here. How about 1,000 people? 
Anybody less than 100? Yeah, me too. I was born in Roby, Missouri. You ever heard of that? I mean, we only lived there for like six months, and then my parents moved to Oklahoma, to the big town of Afton, Oklahoma. I've been a small towner all my life. I was born in Roby, Missouri. I went and looked it up this week. It's not on Wikipedia. It, there's a list of all the towns of Missouri. Roby's not even listed. Okay, here it is on Google Maps. I want to show you. This is Roby, Missouri, right here. It's that intersection of those two roads. That's Roby, Missouri. It has a post office, okay? I know a lot of you can't relate because you're from Chicago, but in a small town, you know everybody you graduate with, you know? If you're from a small town, you know what 4-H is. You people don't even know, do you? you? You might be from a small town if you ever went to a party in a pasture or a barn, okay? You might be from a small town if everybody you would possibly want to know is either at the Dairy Queen or at the feed store. You know what I'm saying? You might be from a small town if you can't buy cigarettes underage because everybody knows how old you are. You might be from a small town if you decide to walk for exercise and five people pull over to give you a ride. That's the kind of thing I'm talking about. That was Roby, Missouri. That was Bethlehem, people. It was so insignificant in size and population that in Joshua 15, when Joshua lists all the towns in Judah, Bethlehem's not on there. It's not on Wikipedia. Nobody even knows about it. The birthplace of the Messiah, whatever, it's insignificant. When I'm out of the country and people ask where I'm from, I say Chicago. Don't you? I mean, if if people don't know the area, I just say, yeah, I'm from Chicago, right? If people know the area, a little bit of Chicago, I lie and say I'm from Orland Park. I'll just be honest with you. Because I have to be with people that really know the area before I admit that I'm from Mokina. Because usually, you know, the reaction is, Mo what? Right? You know what I'm saying? If people from Bethlehem ever traveled anywhere, they never said they were from Bethlehem. I guarantee you. They just said, oh, we're from Jerusalem. That's how insignificant this place was. But there was this prophecy. But you, Bethlehem... This is from Micah 5. Though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come one who will be the ruler of Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. Micah prophesied this 700 years before Jesus. For 700 years, they knew Bethlehem was going to be the place. That's why I can't understand why there's not at least a Ferris wheel. Okay? But, but there's not. But the interesting thing about being in, one of the interesting things about being in the Holy Land was getting to see the Dead Sea Scrolls. You might have gotten to see them. They were at uh, one of the museums here, I don't know, 10 years ago or something. Dead Sea Scrolls, one of the most important archaeological finds ever. Why? Because up until we found the Dead Sea Scrolls, all the American atheists or anybody else had to say about the story of Jesus and the story of, 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 of Christmas or Easter or whatever is that we added that stuff to the, all those prophecies about Jesus, the, the hundreds of prophecies about Jesus, we added them to the Old Testament after Jesus was born. That's all I had to say until we found the Dead Sea Scrolls. And when we found the Dead Sea Scrolls, we found chunks of almost every book of the Old Testament. And it was dated 200 years B.C. We finally found proof that the Old Testament hadn't changed and all of those prophecies were true. And when Micah said Jesus is going to be born in Bethlehem, he said it before Jesus was ever born. That's why people in Jesus' day were a little confused because everybody knew he would be born in Bethlehem. Listen to this. In John 7, 40, on hearing these words, some people said, surely this man is a prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. Still others said, 
But wait a minute. How can the Christ come from Galilee? Does not Scripture say that Christ will come from David's family and from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? See, everybody knew it. I'll tell you why. Because he moved, you dipstick. I mean, why don't you pay attention? Did anybody bother to ask Jesus where he was born? I mean, I don't, I don't even understand this. Yeah, you remember there was a census? Did you guys hear about that? And he had to go to the town of David. Did you hear about that? David, Bethlehem, remember that whole thing? His family's from the house of David, and they didn't get to stay there. Why? Because Herod was killing babies. Did you hear about that time? Herod killed all the babies, and they had to go to Egypt, and they ran away, and they finally came back to Galilee. Before you go trying to put up a billboard and disproving the Christmas story, how about paying attention to history? How about paying attention to some of the facts? That's all I'm saying. Micah 5, 2 again. But you, Bethlehem, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come one who is ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old. What are they saying? I just want to point this out. Whose origins are from old, from ancient times. What does that mean? That means that Jesus wasn't born in Bethlehem. Jesus came to earth in Bethlehem, in, in human form in Bethlehem. Jesus is from old. He's from ancient times. John 1 says, in the beginning was the word. Logos, that word means Jesus. In the beginning was the word Jesus. And Jesus was with God. And Jesus was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life. And that life was the light of men. There's always been a plan for Bethlehem. There's always been a plan for the redemption of God's people. Do you understand this? It goes all the way back to Genesis 3. You only have to get three chapters into the Bible. And you find a prophecy about how from the seed of woman will come one who will crush the head of Satan. Genesis 3. Genesis 12, we find out he's going to come from the, from the family of Abraham. Genesis 49, still in the first book of the Bible, we find out Jesus is going to come from the tribe of Judah. And later on, we find out he's going to come from the house of David. And later on, in Micah, we find out he's going to be born in Bethlehem. And then it all falls into place this Christmas. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken to the entire Roman world. This was his first one. And everyone went to his own town to register. So Joseph went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem to the town of David because he belonged to the house and line of David. And he went there to register with Mary who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. We've heard that story so many times. I think it's we've Norman Rockwell that, you know, so much that, that, that we just see that as normal. And it, it really isn't a normal story. It really doesn't make any sense if you look at it outside of the perspective of what we've heard over and over again. I mean, imagine that you're one of the prophets. Like, like Isaiah, for example. Isaiah is one of the prophets who prophesied over a hundred things about Jesus Christ. About his birth, about his death, about so many different parts about Jesus' story. Isaiah was the one who did it. Can't you imagine Isaiah going back to God and saying, God, are you sure you want, this, you want to come as a baby? Is that what you really want me to write down? Because that, that's kind of crazy. What happens if that doesn't work out? God, are you sure a virgin will conceive? I mean, that's scandalous. Are you sure you want this? You know, are you sure Bethlehem? I mean, Bethlehem, I've never even heard of this town. Why would you want to come there? Can't you imagine Isaiah and God having that discussion? And at some point along the way, God saying, hey, you know what, Isaiah? This is in Isaiah chapter 55. It's a verse maybe you've heard before. Hey, Isaiah, I know you don't understand all this stuff. But my, my ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. Okay? 
I have a plan, Isaiah. And all these things I'm giving you, they're going to work. I can't help but think that Mary and Joseph knew Isaiah 55. See, the, the, the Jews are a, a, a very strong uh, religion about their faith, and they're passing it on to their kids. I mean, we rode on El Al Airlines over to, uh, over to Tel Aviv from New York City. I mean, it's, a Jew, it's an Israeli um, airline. And, uh, I mean, we were on there with a lot of Jews, a lot of Orthodox Jews, you know, with the beards and the twirly thing and the hats and everything. And, and I'm telling you what, those people are religious. I mean, when the sun came up, when the sun came up, they, I mean, I, I took an ambient, so I was gone. But my wife said when the sun came up, they were in the back of the plane doing their prayers. I mean, these are people that pass on their faith. They take it very, very seriously. So I'm very certain that Mary and Joseph knew Isaiah 55. I'm very certain that they knew that. And I'm pretty sure that along the way, when times got tough, Mary and Joseph said to each other, don't forget Isaiah 55, hon. God's ways are not our ways. God's thoughts are not our thoughts. I can't help but think that, you know, as they're on this long, long, long journey to Bethlehem, 75, 80 miles from Nazareth to Bethlehem. They're on this journey. They probably said this to each other a lot. When they're late getting there, because Mary was pregnant and they had to stop and go to the bathroom a hundred thousand times. Can, can we stop blaming Joseph for this, people? It's Mary's fault she was pregnant. She had to stop a lot, okay? And they're late and all the rooms are full and they get there and they're thinking, hey, hey, this isn't right. But, but God's ways are not our way. See, this is one of the deals I think we miss with this story. We, we oftentimes, at least I always did, I always thought, you know, it must have been a real shock to them that they had to take this journey to Bethlehem. Haven't you thought that? You know, like, oh, man, it must have been a bummer. They probably were like, oh, bummer, we got to go to Bethlehem. No, it wasn't no shock at all. I guarantee you they knew Micah 5 too. I guarantee you when the angel came and said, you're going to have the Messiah, they thought, well, how can this be? I'm a virgin. Yeah, we know that part. But they had another thought going on. How can this be? He's got to be born in Bethlehem. And for eight and a half months, they were wondering, how is this going to work? Are, are we reading Scripture wrong? And all of a sudden, a knock came on the door, and somebody said, Hey, Quirinius said, we all got to go to our hometown to register. And Joseph looked at Mary and said, It's on. I guarantee you that's what happened. You know, the truth of the matter is, Mary did not have to go register. Joseph's the only one that had to go register. Mary's eight and a half months pregnant. She did not have to legally go and register in Bethlehem. Why did she go? Because she knew the word. She knew the scripture. She knew what was going to happen. They got on a donkey and they said, okay, this is it. Here we go. The baby's going to be born there. I don't know how it's all going to work, but this is his ways are not our ways. I can't imagine that conversation. I can't imagine what it was like. This is an artist's rendition of what Bethlehem was like. I mean, take away the Stars and Bucks Cafe and all the stuff that's there now. I mean, this is what you imagine it. This little cave here where the baby Jesus is born. And off in the, in the distance is that Herodian palace. It's Herod's great palace. 45-acre palace with 200-acre uh, around it and a mountain that was built so the palace could be on it so that he could be protected from all the people that might want to take him out. I can't, imagine, I, can, I can't help but imagine that maybe Mary and Joseph pulled the baby out and looked up at the palace and thought, huh, I sure thought this was going to be different. I, I sure thought, you know, maybe if when God said, I'm having his baby, that maybe it'd be painless childbirth. Or maybe it would be, you know, I'd be, I'd be taken from Nazareth to Bethlehem, not having to ride a donkey. I can't imagine that, that, that it was supposed to go like this, but your ways are not our ways. Max Licata wrote it this way. 
This isn't the way I planned it. This is the prayer of Joseph. This isn't the way I planned it, God. My child being born in a stable. This isn't the way I thought it would be, a cave with sheep and donkeys and hay and straw. My wife giving birth with only the stars to hear her pain. This isn't what I imagined. I imagined family, grandmothers, neighbors standing by my side. I imagined the house erupting with the first cry of the infant. Slaps on the back, loud laughter, jubilation. That's how I thought it would be. And I guess I bring this up because it may be that that's how you thought it ought to be Christmas 2010. Maybe what's going on in your life right now is not making any more sense to you than Bethlehem did to them. And you need to hear that God's ways are not our ways. The question that we have to ask is why Bethlehem? That's how I started. That's where I want to go. Why Bethlehem? And here's the answer. Because Bethlehem shows the power of God. God didn't need Rome. God didn't need Athens or Alexandria. God didn't need Jerusalem. That's why God picked Bethlehem. Because it was small and insignificant. 1 Corinthians 1 says, God chose the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. I want to tell you something today. If you feel like the lowly and the despised and the big pile of not today, if you're the not and you feel like I don't have anything to give to God, guess what? That is exactly what God wants you to understand. He wants to use you if you're not. See, the world looks at the things that are. We look at the people that are on the magazine covers and the people that are on TV and the people that seem to be important, and we think, well, God has to use them. That's what's really important. But the truth of the matter is, all the way through Scripture, God chooses to use the not. Daniel 4 says, God chooses some people so that the living may know that the Most High is sovereign over all the kingdoms of men. He chooses some lowly people so that the the living may know that the Most High is sovereign over all the kingdoms of men. And He can give them to whoever He wishes and set them over the lowliest of men. We need to hear the way God works because the contrast in this story is so amazing. Why Bethlehem? Because it shows the power of God. You may be sitting out there thinking, you know what? I got nothing to offer. I'm poor. I'm young. I'm small. I'm uneducated. I got no talent. And just when you get to that point, that is when God can use you. I like what Kyle Edelman calls this. He calls this the Bethlehem effect. The Bethlehem effect. It's what God chose the first Christmas and what he chooses for us today. Using the unlikely, using the the things that are not, using the lowly, the Bethlehem effect. I can't help but wonder if the shepherds, I mean, you were talking about the Bethlehem effect. Let's talk about the first witnesses of the baby's birth, right? I love the drama with the kings, you know, with the three kings, the magi being there. But the first witnesses were the shepherds and they didn't bring anything. And I love that because what is that? That's the not. They're the not people. They're the lowliest on the totem pole. The only thing shepherds ever had going for them was that the greatest king who had ever lived used to be a shepherd. King David. City of David. See how all this goes together? 
I just can't help but wonder if the shepherds weren't out there in the field. There was a field that they had still in Bethlehem called the shepherd's field where they said the shepherds were on that night. The angels came and chose them to be the first messengers. And that was kind of cool to see, you know, to be able to think that the shepherds were there and they're and they're talking. And I wonder, don't you think they wondered and they talked about David a lot as shepherds when anybody was dissing them, when anybody was putting them down, they could say, yeah, but David was a shepherd. And they probably often told the story about David. Maybe you don't know it from 1 Samuel 16. Samuel the prophet goes to the house of Jesse and he wants to pick the next king because God says the next king is going to come from the house of Jesse. So Jesse lines up all of his sons from the oldest to the youngest, tallest to the shortest, and he puts them all out there. And Samuel goes, no, 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 no. And he gets to the end. And he's like, God, did my MacQuest get messed up? What happened? Am I not at the right place? And God said, no, there might be another one. And so Jesse, or Samuel has to go, Jesse, do you have another son? And like out in the back somewhere? I mean, is there somebody else? And Jesse goes, well, yeah, my little kid, David, he's out there. He's a shepherd. And Jesse said, or Samuel says, bring him in. And they bring him in and Samuel feels the voice of God, and God says, this is my anointed king. Because God does not look at the outward appearance, but he looks at the heart, and he chose the most insignificant son of Jesse to be the greatest king. He chose a shepherd to be the king. I hope, I'm making this up, but I hope that the shepherds were in the middle of telling that story to each other when the angels appeared and said, glory to God in the highest, peace, a Savior is born. Where? Bethlehem. Why? That's the city of David. David the shepherd boy? Bingo. That's the Bethlehem effect. And it's not just Bethlehem. It's not just the shepherds. I mean, the whole story is this way, right? I mean, who's Mary? We went to the Church of the Annunciation. I'll show you that on Christmas Eve. Uh, Annunciation was announcement, the church of the announcement in Nazareth where Mary was. Mary's home is preserved there. Supposedly her home is preserved there. And it's one of the only places where they allow a statue. The Catholic Church allows a statue of Mary as a young girl to be put up. Usually when you see a statue of Mary, she's a woman. But this is a statue on the church of Mary at 13. Because that's how old she was. Why? Bethlehem effect insignificant, the not. I mean, yes, she was highly favored, but she was a 13-year-old girl who was married to what? A carpenter, not somebody important. They were poor. Do you know how we know they're poor? Because when they go to Jerusalem to dedicate Jesus at the temple, they sacrifice two turtle doves. You might not understand the significance of this, but in Levitical law, the only way you could sacrifice turtle doves instead of a sacrificial lamb as you dedicated your baby was if you were poor. Do you not think that if Mary and Joseph could have put some money on their credit card, they could have charged something, they would have figured out some way to buy a sacrificial lamb? But they were too poor for that, so they got a couple of turtle doves and they sacrificed. Do you understand this? Jesus' parents didn't have enough money to buy a sacrificial lamb for the sacrificial lamb. That's the Bethlehem effect. This whole story is the Bethlehem effect. Why would God choose Mary? Because it proves his power. Why did God choose the shepherds? Because it proves his power. Why did God choose Joseph? Because it proves his power. Why did God choose the little town of Bethlehem? Because it proves it's him. 
And when we come humbly before God and we say, you know what, I'm not all that. I don't have much. I'm coming to you like a child, like you asked me to come, Jesus. That's when he can use us. Jesus was born in a stable in Bethlehem, not in a palace in Jerusalem or a palace in Rome or a palace in Athens. Why? Because most of the world is poor. Maybe you don't understand this, but most of the world is poor. And poor people could not relate to a baby that was born in a palace. Everybody could relate to a baby that was born in a barn. I'm going to show you a clip from Toy Story. The first one, not the third one. It was way too scary for me. The first one was scary, wasn't it? The first one, Buzz Lightyear comes on the scene and he thinks he's, you know, a real astronaut and he's got a real laser and he can really fly and he starts to figure out that he's really just an insignificant toy. But Woody helps Buzz to understand that the reality is that he is a toy, but he's an important toy, and this is the reason. Listen for this line. There's a kid over there who thinks you are the greatest because you are his toy. Let's watch. You were right all along. I'm not a space ranger. Just a toy, a stupid little insignificant toy. Whoa, hey, wait a minute. Being a toy is a lot better than being a a space ranger. Yeah, right. No, it is. Look, over in that house is a kid who thinks you are the greatest. And it's not because you're a space ranger, pal. It's because you're a toy. You are his toy. But why would Andy want me? Why would Andy want you? Look at you. You're a Buzz Lightyear. Any other toy would give up his moving parts just to be you. You've got wings. You glow in the dark. You talk. Your helmet does that, that, that whoosh thing. You are a cool toy. As a matter of fact, you're too cool. I mean, I mean, what chance does a toy like me have against a Buzz Lightyear action figure? All I can do is... Why would Andy ever want to play with me when he's got you? I'm the one that should be strapped to that rock. You should get out of here while you can. Buzz, what are you doing? I thought you... Come on, Sheriff. There's a kid over in that house who needs us. Now let's get you out of this thing. Yes, sir. <laughs> I don't care if you feel like a Woody or a Buzz. You are not significant because of who you are. You are significant because of whose you are. Look over there in that house. There's a God who thinks you're somebody because you're his. That's the Bethlehem effect. That's what God is calling you to do. Not to be somebody else, but to be you. Be Bethlehem. If that's who you are, be the best Bethlehem you can be for him. Phillips Brooks wrote the song. I mean, I couldn't help as I was thinking about this sermon. 
And as I was in Bethlehem, you can't help but think of the song, right? Little Town of Bethlehem. It was written by Phillips Brooks, one of the great preachers of the 19th century. He was a preacher in Philadelphia, a very large church in Philadelphia. He was a very popular preacher in the 1850s and 60s. He, he was a pastor of the church during the Civil War. He was a pastor of the church um, when Abraham Lincoln died. And, after, and when Abraham Lincoln died, even though he wasn't their pastor, he was called on to preach the funeral of Abraham Lincoln. And the, and the war, pastoring a church through the war and through Lincoln's death and all those things took a toll on him. And he said, you know what, I need to get out of here for a while. I need a sabbatical. So his congregation let him go, and he went to the Holy Land, which, of course, was a big deal in 1865. But he went to the Holy Land to visit. And, and on Christmas Eve, he was there. And instead of being in Jerusalem with all the, the crowds of other people that wanted to be in the Holy Land and be at the temple and all that stuff, he decided to get a horse, and he borrowed a horse, and he rode out to this little burg. It's not very far away, this little burg of Bethlehem. And he said as he rode in, it was dusk, and the stars were starting to come out, and he looked off in the hillside, and there were some shepherds there. And he said, he said it was a moment that would sing in his soul forever. It completely revolutionized his ministry. Just being there and being able to see it and be a part of it. Several Christmases later, Brooks tried to jot down some notes about his late night ride into Bethlehem. And as he relieved, relived the experience in his mind, he jotted down this poem, O Little Town of Bethlehem. And he immediately, I mean, it came together like just, just divine intervention. And he immediately took it to his organist, a very famous organist, Louis Redner, who was there, who, who, who tried all day long to try to put a tune to it because they really wanted to use it for their Christmas service. And he couldn't think of a tune. He couldn't think of a tune. And finally, on Christmas Eve, he went to bed, went to sleep, woke up in the night with a tune playing in his head that perfectly fit the poem. So on Christmas morning, 1968, a little town of Bethlehem was complete. By, 18, by, 1860, by 1893, the song had become the most beloved Christmas carol in the world. Phillips Brooks was a great preacher. As a matter of fact, probably would be recognized by those who know the trade as the greatest preacher of the 19th century. There's a building dedicated to his honor at Harvard University where he graduated. None of you know any of that. The only thing you remember Phillips Brooks for is a little poem about a little baby in a little town that's impacted millions, billions of people around the world because sometimes it's the little things that are the most important. Oh, little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. Above thy deep and dreamless sleep the silent stars go by. Yet in thy dark street shineth the everlasting light. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. How silently, how silently the wondrous gift is given. So God imparts to human hearts the blessings of his heaven. No ear may hear his coming, but in this world of sin, where meek souls will receive him still, the dear Christ enters in. Why Bethlehem? Why you? Why me? Because it gives God the opportunity to demonstrate his power and his grace. The Apostle Paul had some kind of a problem and he asked God three times to take it away. And God said, you know what? My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. And Paul said, you're right. When I'm weak, I'm strong in God. So I ask you, what's your excuse for not letting God use you this Christmas? 
I have good news. Today in the city of David, David the shepherd boy, Bethlehem, the Savior has been born. He is Christ the Lord. If you're looking for angels to appear and glory to God in the highest to play, you've got to understand that most of the time God didn't work that way. That was special. Most of the time God shows up in the not melodramatic ways. Most of the time it's to tap on the shoulder. Most of the time it's just a still small voice. When God appeared to Elijah, there was a great roaring fire. There was, a, there was an earthquake. There was a tornado, great wind. And God was not in any of those things. God showed up. In a whisper, in a still small voice, please don't miss the whisper this Christmas. Maybe you're out there and you don't know where you're at with God. You don't know what God is asking you to do. Pay attention to the whisper. That's the Bethlehem effect. You want to know the Bethlehem effect? We planned services about three months ahead of time. We had no idea we'd have our first beautiful snow the first weekend of December when we picked out that song. It's just the way God does it. I knew we were doing this song, and as I watched the snow come down yesterday, I just kept thinking about it over and over again. That's the Bethlehem effect, the pure white snow coming down to cover over all the ugliness. That's what Jesus did. Again, maybe, uh, maybe this Christmas you just need to listen to the still, small voice of God calling you to follow him that that knock that's going on on your heart right now you just need to open up and say okay god come in okay jesus come in i i accept you as my lord and my savior i'm going to follow you i do believe that this is your birthday i do believe that you are real i do believe this story i do believe that there's something after this world and there's no way i can get myself in so I'm going to let you in your blood and your body that we're about to partake of right now, I'm going to let you cover my sin. Soft, quiet, like snow. And he'll do it right now. We're going to have communion right now. Maybe that's a prayer for you. Maybe for the rest of us, it ought to just be, maybe I'm not. Maybe I am a not. Maybe I am a lowly. Maybe I am a despised of this world. Maybe I'm not the important person that I think everybody else is. Maybe I'm Bethlehem. Maybe I'm exactly where God wants me to be. Let's pray. Father God, I'm going to ask that you be with us right now. Be in this place. Fill up this place with your spirit as we commune with you, as we just think for a moment about listening to your, to your voice. We understand the Christmas story about the significance and how all the significant things were going on on other places while you visited the planet in Bethlehem, a place that wasn't even on the Wikipedia list, a place that had no significance. You, you visited through Mary and Joseph, who had no significance. The first witnesses were the shepherds, who had no significance, because that's the way you choose to do things so that it can be through your glory and to your glory. And you want to use all of us. And you want to live in every one of us. And if there are people in this room that need you, I pray that right now they're opening up their hearts saying, Jesus, I, I accept you as my Lord and Savior. I want you to be mine. I want to follow you. For all of us, we say that. We're not important. We come to you as children right now, as little Bethlehems, 
and say, okay, God, whatever you want. Your ways are not our ways. People in this room who don't understand why they're Bethlehem right now, they don't understand why these things are going on. But we're going to trust you right now. Know that your plans are best. Be with us as we commune. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.